Would you pray with me? God, now we approach your word. Lord, you have done miraculous things to ensure that we have this book in our hands this morning. The blood of many martyrs has been shed to secure for us a reliable translation of your word. God, we praise you for this. But we don't just want to praise you with our lips. God, we want to praise you now with our attention, with our minds, with our hearts. So Lord, we ask you, please, send your spirit in a special way to drive your word into our hearts. And then, Lord, from there, to find its way to our hands, our mouths, our thoughts. God, we, don't, we want our lives to be different because we attended church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We'll be in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 this morning. We've been in a sermon series on Philippians for quite some time now. At least a year. This is the 13th sermon in Philippians, in Philippians chapter 4, in the opening verses. Short text this morning, verses 1 through 3. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, My joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In the book of Acts, chapter 15, We read this. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. What we see in Acts 15, in that passage, is a sharp disagreement. Not just a disagreement, a sharp disagreement between two godly men, prominent men in the early church, committed to the cause of missions, and yet they disagreed over Mark. Apparently Mark had abandoned them, withdrawn from them in previous work. So Barnabas said, I want to take him on our next journey. Paul said, no. I think we could both sort of argue either side of that disagreement. See the good reasons for taking him. Paul, you of all people should understand the importance of making mistakes in your past and being forgiven of those mistakes. But then, of course, Paul would say, why would we take this man along with us who just abandoned us and left the work, turned back his hand from the plow? This sort of disagreement happens in the body of Christ. It's not pleasant. We don't like it. We shouldn't look for it or wish for it, but it does happen. Member of Emmanuel Church, it could be this morning that you find yourself in such a disagreement. There are probably people in this room with whom you actively now have or have at one time had disagreements. You've seen things differently. Maybe there's a specific individual or group in your mind even as I say that right now. Maybe the disagreement is in the past, maybe it's active at the moment, but still you carry around what was said what was done, even how a facial expression was interpreted, how something was done. I want us to look at that phenomenon this morning, this phenomenon of disagreement among Christian brothers and sisters. 
What does this text, Philippians 4, say about Christian agreement? And what should we do about what this text says? So if there are headings in this sermon, I've got two of them. Uh, Really, really creative and novel here. Number one, exposition. So what does the text say? Number two, application. What do we do about it? And uh, especially uh, the, the second part of this sermon will probably take up the lion's share, that application portion. I'll spend uh, relatively less time on exposition this morning than I typically would, mostly because I think the text is pretty clear. But I do want to draw out a couple things. Number one, exposition. What does the text say? First, let's look at the context of this passage. Okay, not just looking at the text itself, but let's zoom out a little bit and look at the context. So we've just finished chapter three of Philippians. Uh, You should know some of the passages there. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. I've suffered for his sake the loss of all things so that I might be found in him, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made this my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. All of this is in chapter three. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So after this just glorious treatment of the resurrection and what it looks like for the Christian to strain forward towards that resurrection, we have this closing admonition. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus. So therefore, because of all these things, stand firm that way. Stand firm thus. And immediately after this conclusion, stand firm thus, we're shown one way in which standing firm in the Lord manifests itself in the body, manifests itself here among fellow Christians. What does it look like to stand firm thus in the Lord? Well, one way that looks is for disagreeing Christians to agree. It's one way that we stand firm in the Lord. And with this text, we've now reached sort of the beginning of the end of the book of Philippians. But the book isn't over we're going to see some, glo- some of those glorious material in the book of Philippians is going to come in chapter 4. Agreement among Christians in the body. How about this coming text? Joy and peace in the face of anxieties. Worry. It's glorious. Uh, contentment in any circumstance. Prosperity, poverty, doesn't matter. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, gratitude for the sweet camaraderie which Paul has shared with these Philippian Christians. All this stuff is coming in chapter four. It's a rich chapter that's ahead of us, but still, uh, we're we're now beginning the end of the book. And so one thing we're gonna see in this chapter and one thing we've seen in the book as a whole is this deep affection that Paul has for the Philippian Christians. I've rung that bell several times through this sermon series. Paul loves these saints dearly in a unique way. In verse 7 of chapter 1, he says, I hold you in my heart, talking to them. He says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He calls them his beloved several times throughout the book. And we just saw this in verse 1 of this chapter, didn't we? What What does he say? My brothers, whom I love, whom I long for. He longs to be with them. And listen to this elevated language that he uses to describe them. My joy and my crown. These people are dear to him. And precisely because they're so dear to him, he wants them to be united. He wants them to agree. We see this affection leading to that desire for them to be of one mind, again, throughout the book. Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Hear that one spirit, one mind, 
side by side, striving together. Philippians 2, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, Paul says to them, by doing what? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. So what does that lead Paul to do? That leads him to say really the same exact thing in this text. Stand firm thus in the Lord. I entreat, plead with Euodia and Syntyche. Agree. Be of one mind. Well, let's look at our text. There's a conflict between these two women named Euodia and Syntyche. So we've got two women with a conflict. What do we know about these women? Well, not much. Uh, We know that their names mean roughly success and lucky, which makes sense. They were probably raised in pagan families where these names would be hopeful indicators of how their life might turn out. Uh, The fact that Paul calls them out by name is pretty significant and relatively rare. You might think, oh, we see Paul using names all the time in his letters, right? Well, think about all the Christians that made up the early church. Relatively few of them get called out directly by Paul. Fewer even still are called out with some sort of rebuke or admonition. Typically, it's encouragement or greeting or things like that. Now, why does he name them? Well, he doesn't do it because they're evil or because they're like rotten apples in the church. He does it because they're so precious to him. Right? They're, they're, they're fellow workers of his. They've labored alongside Paul in the work of the gospel. He refers to Clement along with his other fellow workers and says that they are dear to him. And so assured is Paul of their sincerity, their godliness, their genuineness. He even affirms that their names are surely written in the book of life. So in fact, because of these sort of elevated descriptions of Euodia and Syntyche's labors with Paul, most see these descriptions as indicating the fact that these women were prominent in this church. They were notable Christian women, known among the church, key women in the church. So imagine life and ministry here at Emmanuel. Like think of specific women. You, just, you see them all the time. They're at every event. They're always serving. Always trying to be an encouragement. They seem to have just this prominent ministry in this church among this body. And they're loved for it. That's probably Euodia and Syntyche for the Philippian Christians. Now, imagine those women here at Emmanuel embroiled in public conflict. Open disagreement. Perhaps not speaking to one another. Uh, Perhaps factions are sort of forming around each of them. I'm on her side. Well, I'm on her side. How painful would that be for this body, right? To watch these women who once labored so closely together be in such disharmony. And we assume it's public in nature because Paul calls them out. We assume it's a public conflict and Paul isn't just airing dirty laundry, but this was probably included in the church's letter to him. And so he's answering this question that the congregation probably wants an answer to. What do we do about Yodi and Syntyche? Paul probably knows these women. What do we do about this disagreement? Well, sometimes Christians don't agree. Don't be shocked at this. That real companions, true companions, can come to places of disagreement. Again, we saw this happen with Paul himself. The one who's writing to Euodia and Syntyche to agree was in a sharp, acute disagreement with his fellow worker Barnabas. We've seen this happen in prominent ways over the past few years. There's been no shortage of ammunition for disagreement given global and cultural and political affairs over the last few years. Where even godly men and women are placed at odds with one another. We get into the muck of sort of interpersonal conflict, disagreement, resentment. Be warned, the body of Christ is made up of sinners. Each of us in this room, if you're a Christian... You're a redeemed sinner. So sin and selfishness 
always seek to intrude upon the harmony and unity of the church. If this were not the case, Paul would have no reason to tell these two women to agree. He would have no reason to urge us elsewhere to be patient with one another, even to bear with one another's failings. Love would not need to cover a multitude of sins if we didn't transgress against one another a multitude of times. Christian, prepare yourself. The people next to you right now will fail you. There will be moments where they let you down because they are sinners. There will be moments in which the expectations you have of care and love and attention will be unmet. The people who have covenanted to walk together with you, members of this church, we've entered into covenant with one another. To do what? To walk together in love. To pray for one another. To encourage one another. To watch over one another. Well, we ought not to be surprised that even those people in whom we are in a covenant will let us down in keeping those covenant promises. In our text, what's the nature of the conflict? What kind of conflict are they embroiled Well, we don't know. Uh, we can assume it's not some sort of like doctrinal matter over false teaching because Paul tells them to agree, which would not be his counsel if there was false teaching involved. In fact, we can probably guess that there's not a doctrinal matter at play here at all because typically Paul weighs in on those doctrinal matters. Right, if there's a disagreement on a doctrinal matter and they want Paul's counsel, Paul's writing to give them guidance on how to think through that doctrinal disagreement. Even minor convictional issues. Elsewhere, Paul addresses the, uh, the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. The respecting of one day over another. That sort of material is notably absent here. Like I said, it's probably a public disagreement. Paul wouldn't be airing it here in public like otherwise, we don't think. Especially so public that we are here now thousands of years later talking about these women and we know nothing else about them than that they were really good women but they were in a disagreement with one another. So we just don't know the nature of the conflict. It's just a disagreement between two Christian sisters. And it's probably better that way, right? It gives us more leeway in making application from it. It doesn't let us sort of weasel out of applying this text to our situation because, well, it's not exactly like Yodi and Syntyche. Well, you don't know what their disagreement was. So let's just apply it to whatever disagreement you have going on with a Christian brother or sister. Paul gives a command in this text. It seems pretty mild in English, but the commentators who know Greek really highlighted this, all of them, that even though this isn't like a severe command to agree, it is very direct the way Paul goes at this calls them out and gives them just a agree. But it's not severe, it's entreatment. It's pleading. It shows his affection. One commentator notes, one doesn't take risks of this sort, like publicly calling out this sort of thing, unless one can depend on thick cushions of love and trust to absorb the impact of such a public rebuke. Sweet. And Paul does risk this, risks humiliating them, risks them reacting poorly upon hearing this because he loves them so much and wants them to set aside their disagreements. He wants them to be of one mind. These women remaining at odds is just not an option. They must agree. No prescription is given of how they are to agree, how they are to agree, but agreement is the objective. We'll think about that more in just a few moments. It should be noted that the agreement of theirs that's commanded is rooted in Christ. You see that? Look at the text again. I entreat Euodia, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Not just to find agreement, but to find agreement in the Lord. It's reminiscent of Philippians 2. If there's any encouragement in the Spirit, any comfort from love, I just read this a moment ago, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. No selfish ambition. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. You know what's next? What comes after that? The very next sentence. Be of one mind, be in full accord. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Right? So it's that same thing. Be of one mind, one accord, unity, agreement. In Christ, precisely because of Christ, through Christ, should be the basis of their unity. One more thing to note about this text before we get into applications. 
uh, this companion that's mentioned. See, he says, you also, true companion, help these women. Now, short answer, we don't know who the true companion is, all right? Uh, he's writing this to a group of people. You can see throughout the, the, the letter, he's addressing a group, a church. But here he addresses an individual, a true companion. A lot of different guesses as to who that true companion is. Uh, I won't bore you with those. Uh, but one thing to notice is that even if you don't find yourself in a disagreement right now, you still can have a role in bringing unity to disagreements. Right? So there's, there's several people at work here. There's, there's Euodia, Syntyche, they're in disagreement. And then we've got this true companion that Paul enlists to help them agree. This sort of peacemaker that's going to come alongside them and bring unity where there is division. So we don't only have a duty to avoid disagreement ourselves, but as much as lies within us to be instruments in God's hands to bring harmony to any disagreement that lies before us within the body of Christ. Well, let's look at application. What are we to do? So basically, I just want to ask a few questions and list some answers to those questions, okay? So first question, what is the cost of disagreement? Okay, so looking at this text, we want to agree. We want there to be unity. We want there to be harmony. Uh, what do we miss if we don't agree? What liabilities do we experience in disagreement? Well, simply put, Christian, in this world, you have no shortage of enemies, right? So don't create enemies within your own house, within the household of God. Uh, do not, for the sake of something trivial, Turn against yourself what ought to be your chief help and support in time of need. Namely, the Christian brothers and sisters that God has put on either side of you to watch over you and encourage you and protect you. Don't make enemies of your friends. Uh, Satan, the great enemy of the church, will sow as much discord as he possibly can. And sure, disagreement over like big doctrinal matters, of course that's a win for the devil, but he also takes great pleasure in sort of the, the low-level, garden-variety disagreements that pop up in the body of Christ. He plants little weeds of dissent that grow slowly, evading notice until the garden of God is overrun. I was talking to a friend just the other day. He and his wife started gardening, and he was really pleasantly surprised at the, the yield that seemed to be growing in his garden this first, sort of this first try. So harvest is coming up. They're excited. Look at all this, this, these veggies we're going to have. But, he said, time got away from them. He got busy. I see the gardeners in the room are smiling. Uh, time got away from them. They got busy. And uh, they didn't maintain the garden well. And he said this, I was just shocked at how quickly there were weeds everywhere. A little inattention. A little distraction. He said if he had just spent like 10 or 15 minutes a day in light maintenance, that all could have been avoided. I remember hearing once that the best time to pull a weed is as soon as you see it. Why? Well, before it's had time to root itself more deeply into the ground, it's a lot easier to, to uproot. So it is with discord in the Christian body. We must be vigilant, careful, alert, not to fall into these sorts of disagreements. We should seek to destroy discord immediately, as soon as its presence is detected. Because discord doesn't only grow, it spreads. Right? It's not just that one weed becomes entrenched and hard to uproot, it brings other weeds with it. So it is with disunity in the body. It does not just infect one person acutely, it infects those around that person or those people as well. Listen to the Puritan Thomas Brooks on disagreement in the body. Christians, God loses much, and you lose much, and Satan gains much by this, that you do not, that you will not walk lovingly together so far as your ways lie together. It is your sin and shame that you do not, that you will not 
pray together, hear together, confer together, and mourn together because in some far lesser things you're not agreed together. What folly and madness is it in those whose way of a hundred miles, 99 of them lie together, yet they refuse to walk the 99 together because they cannot go the one extra mile together. Yet such is the folly and madness of many Christians. End quote. Christian, much is lost by our disagreement. Second question, why should we agree? I'll list some multiple answers to this. Some of these answers will have a little bit more explanation. Some of them will be very short. Why should we agree? Yes, much is lost in the absence of agreement, but much is gained when brothers and sisters agree. So why ought we to do so? Number one, why should we agree? Union in Christ. I get this straight from the text. Agree in the Lord. Christian, you are in Christ. Your agreement with other Christians is an expression of your mutual participation in Christ. It's a manifestation outwardly of the real and mystical union that you enjoy with one another through Christ's Spirit. So if you're a Christian, you don't get to hold grudges, especially against other Christians. Uh, Pastor Alex mentioned this in his consideration of the Sermon on the Mount. Unforgiveness is a non-option for the Christian. It's not on the table. You don't get to choose whether or not you're going to forgive. If a house divided against itself will not stand, would you, Christian, by your disagreement, divide Christ's house against itself? Divide the members of Christ's body against themselves? Christ's own body against Christ's own body. Over what? What body would turn against itself? What army would war against itself? And yet by our harboring of these disagreements, of this discord, of this disunity, we would see the army under the command of the Lord himself destroyed by friendly fire. And I don't think destroy is too strong a word there. Uh, In Romans 14, there's disagreement in the church over meat offered to idols. I mentioned that earlier. You know what Paul says? Paul says, quote, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. So by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. So, if you adopt the attitude, well, I don't care what he thinks. I don't care what bothers her. I'm going to do what I want to do. Well, according to Paul, you are actively attempting to destroy the work of God. The church is a building made up of living stones. So imagine this building. This is a metaphor used for the church in the scriptures. Uh, Each of those bricks is a member of the church. The church is built by stones, living stones, members, Christians. And what Paul is entreating, pleading for us to understand here is simply this, that our disunity with one another will tear those stones apart one by one and destroy the work of God. So believers in this room, what disagreement do you have? What offense is so severe that it's worth destroying the church? not even the church as a whole, but destroying even one for whom Christ died. Christ died to obtain as his reward a holy, set-apart people. I hope that we don't despise Christ so much that we would destroy that reward, corrupt that reward with disunity, thereby profaning and belittling his sacrifice. Again, I hope this doesn't sound like overstatement. I don't think it is overstatement. Those are Paul's words. Disagreements don't belong among people who've been united to one another through Christ. So why ought we to agree? Well, our union with Christ, number two, our union with Christ and our union in Christ uh, for number one. Number two, uh, God has given us numerous commands to love one another. Uh, Listen to the scriptures. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. These things I command you, command you, that you love one another. 
Owe no man anything but love one another. For he that loves another has fulfilled the law. Let brotherly love continue. Love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. I could go on. It's just a small sampling, but we must ask, what more can God say to us than what he has said in giving us commands to love one another? Fervently love one another with a pure heart. There's no place for quarreling or disunity in the face of so many clear and fervent commands that we would love one another, genuinely and sincerely. Number three, why ought we to agree? What we gain encouragement from our unity with one another. It's good for you that you agree with your brothers and sisters. You will gain much thereby. John Newton says it this way, It is no doubt a great encouragement in a field of battle to know that the army we belong to is large, unanimous, all in action, pressing on from every side against our common enemy and gaining ground in every attack. Newton says that this same consideration ought to give the Christian fresh spirit and vigor in the battle against our common enemy. You've surely experienced this where you've been cast down, you've been discouraged, perhaps you've been anxious or consumed with worry and a well-timed word from a Christian brother or sister just infuses you with light and hope. Many times my Christian friends have helped me back from the brink, whether it be from sin, discouragement, cold-heartedness and apathy, The members of this church are there beside you to rescue you again and again. They are Christ's agents for your aid, for your help, for your rescue. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said of Christian unity, this is wonderful. We shall be invincible if we would be inseparable. So if we are inseparable, we would be invincible, unable to be conquered. Why ought we to agree? Our union in Christ, all the commands that the Bible gives to love one another, the encouragement we gain from one another. Number four, the example of Christ. John Flavel, another Puritan, reflects on Christ's example. Listen to this. How many thousand infirmities and failures does Christ find in his people? How many thousand infirmities and failures does Christ find in his people? And yet, he maintains union and communion with us. And if they, after his example, shall do likewise with one another, surely our God will be eminently glorified. End quote. Consider the high priestly prayer of John 17. Christ is about to go to his death. What is on his mind as he prays to the Father? The unity of his people. Our unity. Our ability to put aside disagreements. He says... I do not ask for these only, his disciples that were there, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Try to think of more elevated language about our unity. I dare you. You have Jesus talking to the Father saying they should be one the same way we are one. Doesn't get much more elevated than that. John Flavel, again. Brothers, if you would study how best to frustrate the designs of your Lord and how best to grieve his heart, you cannot take an easier way to do it than by breaking the bonds of unity amongst, your, amongst yourselves. If you want the, the best, surest way to frustrate your Lord's designs and to break and grieve his heart, foster disunity among, your, among yourselves. That's what Flavel says. Next, why ought we to agree? We are exiles in hostile territory. This is why Paul urges believers to be of one mind, standing side by side in the defense of the gospel. I alluded to this earlier. Christian, you have many foes. 
No shortage of enemies that are trying to shipwreck your faith at every turn. It would be a wretched soldier then who riding into the field of battle turns to his comrade and shoots the horse out from under him. Right? But there you are. There I am. A host of cosmic supernatural forces arrayed against us and we harbor disagreements with our fellow soldiers as we march into battle together. Why would we squabble with our closest allies? Why would we fight with those who are charged with keeping us safe and protecting us and keeping us from falling? I have to skip one or two of these. We're running out of time. One more reason why we ought to agree. Our many sins have been forgiven. Listen to John Newton. I just read this this morning. A true Christian believes and feels his own weakness and unworthiness. He lives upon the grace and pardoning love of his Lord. This gives him a habitual tenderness and gentleness of spirit humbled under a sense of much forgiveness to himself he finds it eminently easy to forgive others if he has anything against anyone a due sense of what he is in the sight of the lord preserves him from giving way to anger and resentment he is therefore not easily provoked but is swift to hear slow to speak and slow to wrath and if offended easy to be entreated And he is disposed, get this, he is disposed not only to yield to reconciliation, but to seek it, end quote. So if we are familiar with the amount of forgiveness we've been given by Christ, he who has been forgiven much loves much. And so we don't just yield to reconciliation, we seek reconciliation. We hunger to be reconciled. It bothers us to be at disunity with our brethren. Christian, if you find yourself in a disagreement where you sincerely feel you've been wronged, true injustice has been done to you, call to mind the multitude of injustices and wrongs that have come from your hands, your lips, your thoughts. Recall the host of sins that you have committed against your Lord. And then rejoice that he has taken the loss for your wrongdoing your offenses, your unjust behavior, and then forgive. Be reconciled to your brother because Christ has delighted to reconcile you to his father. Surely it's easier to reconcile sinner to sinner than to reconcile a sinner to God. And yet the same Christ who did the latter seeks to help you do the former. Third question. Third question. How do we agree? So we've seen the cost of disagreement, why we ought to agree. Third question, how do we agree? Well, we're to exercise, again, I'll give multiple answers here. We're to exercise humility. Thomas Brooks, again, quote, humility will make a man excellent at covering others' infirmities and at recording their gracious services and delighting at those graces. It makes a man joy in every light that outshines his own and every wind that blows good to others. Humility does this, Brooks says. Did you catch that contrast? It makes him, it makes her excellent, skilled at covering the infirmities of others and recording diligently their graces. We are so prone to the opposite, aren't we? To just keep the tally of all the wrongs that have been done to us. But it is humility that flips that on its head and makes us diligent in recording their graces. Experts in their strengths and ignorant of the wrongs that have been done to us. Humility makes us slow to take offense. It makes us unwilling to hold against our brother things that have been done against us. Haven't you been careless in your speech? Have you never neglected to remember your brother or your sister and their needs? And wouldn't you welcome forgiveness at your shortcomings? 
So let us not withhold or begrudge that forgiveness to others when wrongs are done against us. Why can't we forgive the same when it's done against us? Two, how do we go about agreeing? Well, we exercise humility. We bear with one another's failings. It is sad to consider. This is Brooks again. By the way, I'm getting this all from one book from Thomas Brooks. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It is sad to consider that saints should have so many eyes to behold one another's infirmities and not one eye to count each other's graces. He goes on to lament that we would use glasses to behold one another's weaknesses rather than magnifying glasses to find one I'm sorry, we use glasses to find one another's weaknesses and we don't use a magnifying glass to record and search out and find one another's graces. We are so quick to judge others by their actions but to judge ourselves by our intentions, right? I meant to do good. We would never, ever extend that grace to our brother or our sister when we've been wronged. We only make judgments on what they've done, what they've said. Well, if he said that, he wouldn't have thought this. We're to bear with those failings. Be patient. We should offer to our brothers the same benefit of the doubt that we enjoy having extended to us. Bear with their failings. Third, we're to prefer one another. If you can't tell, I'm just getting all these from the scriptures. Prefer one another. Another way of saying this, be willing to lose. Right? We want to win our brother, not best our brother in a disagreement. We want to come beside our brothers and sisters, not have victory over our brothers and sisters. These sorts of disagreements are not about winning They're about reconciling. It's not about being who's right, who's wrong. It's about pursuing harmony. But here's the rub. Being the party that initiates reconciliation often feels exactly like losing, right? There's disagreement. If you're the one who puts down the sword, puts up the flag and says, I come in peace, that looks a lot like losing. But it's not, not in God's economy. We are to be peacemakers, We are to be that party that pursues reconciliation. Marriage is such a great illustration of this, right? Get into a disagreement with your spouse. Some cold shoulders are being given to one another. It is hard to be the one that goes, I'm really sorry, and to mean it, right? It's difficult. And let me just say a word to husbands. Husbands, that's on you. You want to be the leader in the relationship? You want to be the head of the home? You lead in pursuing harmony. She said this. She did this. Put down the weapons. Reconcile to your wife. But we don't want to be the one to lose. We especially don't want to be the one to lose again. We feel like we've done it before. But nonetheless, we are to prefer the good of the other to our own good. We are to be eager to bear inconveniences if it would benefit our brother and sister in Christ. But Christian, aren't we often more concerned with our comforts, how we feel, how we are perceived, than securing the comforts and privileges and benefits of our sister, of our brother? Philippians 2, Paul said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That sort of preference of the other, deferring to their good. That's to characterize our relationship to one another. Not just looking out for our own good. Next, how do we agree? We are to forgive one another. The Bible says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Forgiveness is difficult because our minds are expert at rehearsing each other's failings, right? Someone has done wrong against you, It's hard to forgive because it's so easy to just play that back again and again in your mind, that wrong that was done against you, what you'd like to say to that person, do to that person. Let me say this, and we're gonna see this come up in our text. Actually, let's read a couple verses ahead here in Philippians 4. He's gonna say in verse eight, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Apparently, 
Paul feels some liberty at commanding us what to think. Paul is telling us to control what's going on in our minds. So, Christian, you're in control of your mind. How should that affect the way that you handle bitter thoughts about your brothers and sisters? Right? It's not hard to think about this with lustful thoughts. Right? If an inappropriate, lustful thought enters my mind, what is my duty? We would all agree. Shun that thought. Repel that thought. Think on something else. We don't take that tack with bitter thoughts, unforgiving thoughts. Well, because I was wronged, right? Injustice was done against me. But likewise, when those bitter thoughts enter your mind, when, it, when it's comforting in some way to you to rehearse the failings of that person in which you're in whom you're with a disagreement, shun those thoughts. Repel them the same way you would a lustful thought. Don't sit there and dwell on how you've been wronged, how you've been poorly treated. But think on things that are good and lovely. Drive that thought away and forgive the other person. How do we agree? Another answer. Be direct. This is a little bit less clear from the scriptures, but from practical experience, I find this to be abundantly clear. If you find yourself in a disagreement with a sister, with a brother, go to them. Don't go to everyone else besides them to talk about the disagreement. Go to them. Do you want to be reconciled with them? There's only one way to, to do that, and it's in approaching them with the grievance. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. Be reconciled to your brother first, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accusers, Jesus says. That eagerness for reconciliation, for harmony, for peace among the brothers should cause us to be direct to be, to be eager to bring reconciliation, and so we approach quickly. Just as a general rule, the more open and direct communication is between two friends, the sweeter that friendship is going to be. Don't withhold that sort of stuff. Get it out in the open and deal with it together. Two more. Be peacemakers. How do we go about agreeing? Well, be a peacemaker. And again, I don't only have in mind here the individuals that are in the disagreement. I'm thinking of someone like that true companion that Paul mentioned who is coming alongside to help in this disagreement. Strive to be that sort of person. Be a person who, when people are striving together in opposition, seeks to bring reconciliation to the matter. Alex actually sent me a quote earlier this week that perfectly illustrates this. It's a letter of John Wesley written to John Newton. I love John Newton. John Wesley says of Newton, quote, you appear to be designed by divine providence for a healer of breaches, a reconciler of honest but prejudiced men and a uniter, happy work of the children of God. Wesley saying that to Newton. May God give us grace to give us many such people in this congregation. May you be such a person. May I be such a person that it seems just like a peculiar ability you have to bring reconciliation where there's disharmony, to bring accord and unity and fellowship wherever you go. Sort of a, a modest touch of unity that you seem to possess. May God give us many such people. Finally, how are we to agree? We're to remember that unity is granted by God. In Romans chapter 15, Paul says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when you're praying for your fellow church members, say that prayer about them. It doesn't matter, you can always bring up before the Lord in prayer for your fellow saints that they would know harmony, that God would grant them peace and unity with yourself and with the rest of God's people. So if you're praying through the church directory, you come to a family and you don't really know their specific needs, 
It's not copping out to pray for them that God would grant them the unity that accords our union in Christ. That God would knit their hearts to mine, to my families, and to all the other saints of this congregation. That's not a cheap prayer. That's a glorious prayer. We have to feel that sort of freedom in praying for one another. That God would allow them to enjoy deeper, richer unity with the saints around them. Well, very briefly, one final question. I just want to make one comment on this and then we'll we'll be done. What if they won't agree? So let's say Euodia Euodia is, she's ready. She's humble, ready to agree. And let's say Syntyche ain't having it. What are we to do? We're ready to lay down arms but the other party will not have it. Remember Romans chapter 16. Paul says, if possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So the command is clear. Live peaceably with all. That's the imperative verb. Live peaceably. And that means something. You and I are to live peaceably with everyone. As far as it depends on us. If possible. That's not a cop-out. But that is saying that you can't control what someone else does. You can't make them forgive you, for instance. But you can make every single effort for peace and then resign the whole matter to God. God, my conscience is clean that before you, I have done everything I can to be unified with this brother, with this sister. But we want peace. I'll conclude just by reading a verse. 1 Corinthians 1.10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. I made the comment before I got up here to preach, actually, just moments ago. I found this this sermon somewhat difficult to prepare because from my perspective, this congregation enjoys such a unique and lovely depth of community and unity with one another. The affection and harmony that seems to characterize Emmanuel Church is a glorious gift of God. So brothers, sisters, let's maintain that. Let's not shipwreck this gift that God has given us by giving us the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. May it be so. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful to be a part of a church. Lord, there are Christians around the world right now that are in relative solitude. They don't have the gift of community around them because of some hard providence that has been brought into their lives. And Lord, here we sit. What an abundance of riches we have sitting all around us in one another. And we have Christ on top of all of it. Lord, we have been given so much. So Lord, please, kill destroy any disunity, any discord, any strife that would seek to weed its way into this congregation. God, I pray that you would give our elders wisdom. God, help them to protect this flock diligently from such disunity and discord. Lord, we want to experience among ourselves the very unity that you experience with your Son and with the Spirit. God, grant this to us. In Christ's name, amen.